welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Stephanie Davis. She is the Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer for Volkswagen Group of America. She assumed her role in May 2017. Prior to that, she served as a director in the National Forensic Practice of the Audit Tax and Advisory Firm KPMG based in Washington DC. She specializes in automotive, banking and energy clients with a focus on financial service fraud, forensic accounting investigations, compliance policies and procedures and regulatory change management. She also spent more than 7 years in compliance roles in the electric and power industry. Hi Stephanie, welcome to Women to Women podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We always ask all of our guests how their childhood was, their siblings. So let's start there. So how was your childhood? My childhood was I was very very lucky. I have 3 younger sisters and we were all incredibly close. Our parents with with four girls, my parents really encouraged us to just kind of do whatever we, you know, there there was never any question of what we could and couldn't do and so I was I think I was in college before I figured out that there was this like societal men do certain things and women do certain things because my parents had been so um encouraging of us to follow our our dreams and our our goals and never really make any excuses so it was i loved it i grew up in a small town in ohio couldn't have asked for a better childhood luckily so now that you know everything you do right um certain kind of questions little girls get asked or comments versus boys and all of these things that we keep seeing every day do you think that was an advantage for you because you really never had to face that mindset that you couldn't do something and you could just go out and do whatever you wanted you know i say that yes absolutely but i think i think even even in my household there was still you know the i i noticed that my sister has girls and boys as now and i noticed the subtle ways even like the way you get gifts right i i all find a cute outfit for my niece and then i'll think that my nephew needs a truck and then i have to kind of like change my brain a little and say actually maybe they should both get trucks or maybe they should both get outfits because i think we do kind of we are wired to think differently and and women little girls are told that they should be quiet and they should be sitting there nicely and little boys are rambunctious and that's okay and i i think there is probably some biological piece to that they have done studies that show that like little boys have more kinetic energy than little girls but um i'm very lucky that i might have been told to be nice and i might have been told to be sit, sit still and be quiet but i don't think i listened and i was told that you know being bossy i was a leader so um i did they did definitely do that for me which was really really good <laughs> so surprisingly you wanted to be a pediatric oncologist i did i thought i had it some experience with childhood cancer and thought that this was really my calling and i did some volunteering i grew up in right outside of cleveland so the cleveland clinic which is a really huge pediatric oncology ward i volunteered there in high school and in college and i got to college and i could not pass organic chemistry to save my life. I just don't have the brain for it. I had the heart but not the brain. And I went to talk to my college guidance counselor and she said, "Look, if you continue this route, you're going to flunk out of college. However, you're getting straight A's in English and political science classes which you're just taking tons of which are nowhere near your major." And I said, "Yeah, but that's cuz I love them." And she said, "Well, you know, if those come so naturally to you, you know maybe maybe you should think about that so i i sort of pivoted and my mother had always told me she thought i should be a judge which ironically in my current career there is a little aspect of the of of being a judge and um so i went to law school but it was a, it was a massive pivot for me and it was but when i really think about it um it kind of shaped my entire philosophy which is you know do something that you're good at naturally because it's so hard <laughs> to get good at 
the things that you're not good at, as opposed to, you know, something that comes pretty naturally to you. So I, you know, you're, you're, you're effortlessly passing all these really tough classes. You cannot pass OCHEM. <laughs> Maybe that's a sign <laughs> that you shouldn't be a doctor. <laughs> that I know sounds very funny, but I'm sure at that point of time, that was devastating well, for you because <laughs> sometimes we have a dream, we have a plan. And when things don't work out, you're suddenly like at a loss. You know, what do I do from yeah. here? Do you have any advice for girls who kind of have a plan and things don't work out? What would you say to them? I'd say, you know, a, a pivot can be a really beautiful thing. And that kind of resiliency to understand that, you know, the things that we have in our head may not be what what ends up. Every time in my life that I've had a major pivot, whether personal or professional, it's always worked out better in the, you know, my plan was never as good as what actually ends up happening. So trust the pivot, trust the greater, you know, whether you believe in a God or the the universe, but trust the pivot because usually what I've seen is it ends up working out better than your, than your goal was in the first place. So once you moved to political science, was your intention to be in law or did you have other ambitions and how did that come about? You know, I really wanted to be a, um, this was before there was a bunch of lobbying movies in the early 2000s. So they kind of would have soured me on this, but I, I wanted to be a lobbyist in, in DC for nonprofits and really try to speak to getting some of the you know political money into, into the nonprofit world. And I graduated in the right as the financial market was crashing in 2008. And again, honestly, there was another pivot. I knew I didn't want to go into big law, but I kind of had to pay my law student loans. And I decided that maybe the smarter thing would be to go you know, work at a company and actually figure out how to pay the $200,000 in student loans that I'd taken out. And um, again, much, you know, it was, it was such a blessing that, 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 that that's what happened. I ended up going back to my hometown for a couple of years. I got to be with my little sisters while they graduated high school. And it set me off on um, a path of, you know, compliance um, professionalism. And I, I've been in, I've been in the compliance world now for 15 years and never, ever would have considered it had I not had to make that pivot in, in 2008 and figure out how to you know pay for pay for my student loans and really uh you know because I was not a, I was not a good law student I did I did not get the great grades I didn't get like I didn't go to the top tier law firm or law school so the law big law firms didn't want me anyway thank God <laughs> and it's it's been a much more I've really loved my career and cannot imagine it having gone any differently now that I look back. So if somebody's trying to get into compliance, do you think there's mm-hmm. an easier way of getting into compliance? Would you kind of recommend certain roles or jobs that they take or even courses in college if they're looking into compliance as a career option? I think that traditionally, we've always kind of thought that compliance, compliance officers needed to be lawyers. I don't personally subscribe to that. My entire team is made up of accountants and former consultants and security professionals. I think one of the things I would say is data analytics is really big now. So so understanding how data comes in and how how privacy works, um, if you can take classes like that in college, obviously, um, any ethics courses, <laughs> I think for me, it's really about, you know, reaching out to organizations and the people who when you're in college, reaching out to people you admire, maybe on LinkedIn, or someone in the in the field that you that has a vision and has a profile and reaching out to them and saying, Hey, what do you suggest I do? And a lot of times those people can open doors like internships or jobs or summer jobs or helping you with your resume. So that's 
I think networking is really important there too. You actually touched on a very important topic, networking. For some reason, we have this inhibition, like how do you start? How do you even go to a stranger and start a conversation? What helped you overcome those inhibitions? And how did you go about networking? I think I didn't know any better. I think I didn't necessarily know what I was doing, but I was very aware that relationships that I made in my early career I was really careful not to burn bridges, right? And so my first job after my first job was a former client of the regulator that I was working in who I had opposed in some legal matters. And they said, actually, we're trying to build out this compliance organization. We think you'd be really good at it. Would you come work for us? And because I hadn't been so combative or, you know, we had a professional relationship, they, they reached out to me. And so it, that kind of got the ball rolling. So I, th- I think from a networking perspective, I, I, I'm a big proponent of never burning the bridge. You never know, you know, especially in compliance, it's a really small field. So we know everyone in general, I think it's good advice not to burn bridges, but also, you know, making those genuine connections. It doesn't really work to just reach out to someone and be like, Hey, be my mentor. Cause that's not how mentorship works. It has to be a genuine connection. It has to be, Hey, you are really someone that I've admired and I'm really interested in how you got there. Can you take it? 15 minutes, have a virtual coffee with me. I think in some ways the pandemic has helped us from that perspective because it's not strange to reach out to someone on LinkedIn now and say, hey, I'm in California, you're in New York, can we have a virtual coffee? And I I think a lot of people say yes to that because, you know, we, uh, we've all been there and we all want you know, the, the younger generations to succeed and, and, and do well, but, but networking is not just saying, Hey, be my mentor. It's, it's really creating that genuine connection with people. I think is important. Did you have any mentors? I think I've, I've had many mentors in my career. I, I think, I don't know that I've ever called some, I've never formally said, okay, this person is my mentor. It's much more in my career. It's been much more casual than that, but I have, I have mentors in my current company at every level of the company. I have People who, you know, 10 years after working with them, I could still pick up the phone and say, hey, what do you think about this? And then I have people from my personal life that were also quite successful professionally that I can pick up the phone numerous times and said, okay, here's what's going on in my career. Here's the bigger picture. What do you think? And I've been really, really blessed that, that those people are still taking my calls. And I'm trying to do that for the next, the next group of people as well, because I think, I think it's incredibly important to have people in all different aspects, maybe not in your same, maybe not in your same industry, even who can just kind of weigh in as an outsider. So we also talk a lot about allies and sponsors at workplace, right? Because you need somebody to represent you when you're not there. How do you go about finding those people that truly have an interest in you and your success? I think that's a lot harder. I think it's it's easier to find it's easy to find mentors. Easy is a tough word, but allies and sponsors who are going to make sure that your name is in the conversation, even if you're not in the room, is a lot harder. And that's generally I've seen those happen because you've done something professionally that they're impressed by, that they're really excited about, and they say, you know what, they're ready for the next step, and they're talking about succession and things like that. So again, that's you know kind of reading the room, seeing. <laughs> Who, who you think will be in the rooms that you're not in and just saying, hey, raising your hand, saying I'm ready for a new challenge or um, I really love doing this. If you ever have something open up on your team or you hear anything, please keep me in mind. Generally, I don't see that going badly. You also had mentioned, you know, nowadays people are more um, accepting of a cold call from somebody you don't know. But are there certain things that you would that would make you pick up that phone and say, yes, I want to talk to you. Now everybody 
researches the other person on LinkedIn. I've had I've had it happen where, you know, hey, I was at this conference that you spoke at and you're, you know, making that again, I go back to genuine connections. So I was at a conference and I spoke and someone someone emailed me and said, Hey, I really liked what you said about mentorship, let's say. Um, I was wondering if I could pick your brain for 10 minutes about how you came to that philosophy, how you got to where you are. That's much more personal. And that's that's something I'm probably going to take that phone call as opposed to, hey, I saw your profile on, profile on LinkedIn, let's connect. And I'm always like, I'm not interested in that, <laughs> right? So I think it's it's more, you know, having, or I, I read the paper that you wrote on this one topic, or I'm writing my thesis on this and your name came up as someone who might be able to help me with that. Those are the people that I'm going to actually talk to because it's a much more genuine connection at that point. Speaking of personals, you're expecting twins any day, any minute. Congratulations, first of Thank all. You. That's huge. How have you, and you're still working today. So yes. let me ask you this, like, how have you made that balance work for you? Because you do have a very high stress job mm-hmm. and all of this coming together, like what has yeah. helped you manage I have always said it takes a village, even before we had contemplated having kids. I am never, ever going to tell you that I am the superwoman doing everything. I am farming out everything, including like evening feedings, right? Or night feedings. I am not afraid to say that I I do have a really big job and so does my husband. And one of the advantages of having twins when you're 39 is you may be able to have resources that you, 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 you didn't have access to when you were um, in your twenties to make that a little easier. So I, I am a big proponent of saying we will have a full-time nanny. I'm probably going to have night help until they sleep through the night. I'm not embarrassed about that. That means more people to love my children. You know, from a maternity leave perspective, I'm going to um, work remotely. And, you know, instead of going 120% on my job, I may knock it down to about 80%. But I, I think it's what works for you and what works for your family. And um, my husband is incredibly supportive of understanding that my job is a really big part of who I am and really, really excited to welcome our, our twins and, and, and bring them into the world, but also continue to be me and, and the, and the person that I've, I've kind of been. So I don't know that my experience will be one that other people will ever want to emulate, especially the twins part, because that's going to be a lot. I think it's really important for me to admit that I'm not going to plan to do it alone. I'm not interested in being a martyr or being um, the superwoman. I'm just going to love my kids and love my job and love the people that help us do both. <laughs> so I've heard it being said, you know, women make great leaders because of, yeah. of our empathy and the way we think. Yeah. Because yeah, you delegate. <laughs> because you delegate, you understand, you can do it all yourself. You delegate and you prioritize because there's only yeah. so much time you have. So you prioritize better. And uh, you really make your team work better. Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of the women on my team who've 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 gone out and had kids and come back. They they prioritize differently, and they make you know they make sure that you know. I think a lot of jobs have things built into the jobs that maybe don't need to be there, right? This kind of like the fluff pieces. So um, I tend to see working mothers maybe not congregating around the stereotypical water cooler as much, but they are getting their stuff done because they've got to be out at 445 because they've got to do the pickup or they've got to get to the um, daycare. And my feeling is, is, is really, I want people to bring their full selves to work, whether it's 
their motherhood or they're really big skiers or they're really, you know, they help out at home with their grandparents. I think the era of not being your full self um, needs is gone. And I think that's another thing. It's a, it's a gift that we got out of the pandemic is, is that we, we have to bring our full selves to work now. And, you know, if, if your cat cries in the middle of a meeting, I'm going to probably ask how your cat is doing, right? It's, it's as opposed to pretending we don't have lives outside of work. Now it's, you know, trying to bring it all in, which I, I think is, I think that's a really positive thing. No, absolutely. Sure. And and I think we, we have been talking about our authentic self for a few years now. COVID mm-hmm. has really brought everybody's authentic self to the forefront. Mm-hmm. There is no other way. Because we didn't have an option, right? We didn't have an option. And again, I, I think it's important also, I feel like having children is, is it should be a choice and very much for most of my career was it was not on the in the cards for me and so i don't think you have to be a mother to be like a full person right i think a lot of that is like society says that about women sometimes and i think i know so many incredible women on all different levels of you know motherhood non-motherhood the women that i tend to gravitate towards are the caretakers who you know, not necessarily mothers, but who really understand that we have unique abilities in the workplace to find that empathy, to find um, those teaming pieces. But one of the things that I always tell young women that I mentor, one of the drawbacks of that I've seen with women is that we are much more likely to give credit to our teams when we are complimented. That is not necessarily a compunction. I see a lot of men in large corporations having. And so I always tell women that they need to take credit for their achievements, whether it was, and it's great to say it was part of a team, but you ran the team, right? Or it was your idea. Take that credit because I think we, you know, maybe we, I don't want us to lean so hard into empathy and teamwork and collaboration that we don't get the credit we deserve. That's great advice. That's absolutely great advice. You work in a very male-dominated industry. Like even even law is like very, very male-dominated field, so to say. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had, you know, situations where you had to face typical perceptions that surround women? Yes, every day. <laughs> um, of, of course. But, you know, I, I think the law, I mean, law schools are now, I think 60% of law schools are now women of the, of the people that are going into law school, but it's still something like less than 20% of the partners in big law are women. So it, it, the numbers don't, don't continue. And one of the things that, you know, in the automotive industry, in, in law, in banking, and a lot of industries are, are male dominated, right? When I first got to Volkswagen, I was 20 years younger than everyone else in the boardroom. And I was the only woman reporting the CEO other than his, um, his assistant. And I, I kept coming home and I would just be talking to my husband. And I said, look, there's so much pressure on me. Every time I open my mouth, it's, you know, I'm speaking for all of the women. And I, and I came home for like two straight months, kind of, it was really, I was carrying this burden that no one asked me to carry. And my husband finally sat me down and he said, I have to tell you, I have to give you some tough advice. I said, okay, or some tough feedback. And I said, okay. And he goes, if you keep seeing yourself as the only woman in the room, that's all you're ever going to be. And it was like, right? So he said, everyone is struggling. Everyone is thinking about whether what they said is the smart thing or all of these kinds of things. Everyone is fighting personal battles. 
And the minute I allowed myself to think differently about my position in there, which was they absolutely needed me in that room. And my experience was different than everyone else's in that room. And they needed my experience, especially given what Volkswagen was going through at the time. And so once I stopped questioning that, I became so much more comfortable and I could be my really true authentic self. And I never cared ever again that I was the only woman in that room because my voice mattered. It didn't matter if I was a woman or a man or, you know, a six foot, you know, alien. It, whatever I was saying was needed. You may be the only woman in the room sometimes, but you deserve to be there as much as anyone else. And in many cases, I've, I've seen the women who get to those rooms are way more impressive than the men because they don't have the like old boys clubs to get them into the room. They had to get their own merits, which is actually a lot harder. But that's, that's such a great way of looking at it. You know, a whole mm -hmm. mind shift. You're there because they need you. You don't have to carry anybody else's burden. You just have to do your job. It adds a lot if you add that burden onto it. If you start thinking about the burden that you are under because you like you have to be the only woman in the room, you're adding a lot of extra stress. And women already have a lot of extra stress on their on their days and their lives. You know, we already take on all the extra, you know, work at the house and all that kind of stuff. So I would say don't don't add on extra to that. So seeing all the mentees you have mentored along the way and all the other women you work with, do you think there are certain things that women kind of make a mistake about? when they're dealing with their careers, it could be mindset, thinking, or even certain habits that we have that we should just stay away from. Well, I think one of the big ones for me is, is that piece of giving other people credit because that's the nice thing to do. Going back to our childhoods where, where little girls are supposed to be nice and little boys are supposed to be bossy and, and leaders and, and, and girls that were bossy were bossy and boys that were bossy were leaders, which I think is still happening. I don't think it's happening as much from what, what I've observed with my sister and my niece and my nephews um, and, and their teachers. But in general, we're afraid to be seen as, you know, shrill or harsh or whatever. I happen to work for a German company and the Germans, I, get told, I got told a lot in the very beginning that I was very direct and they liked that. And what they were really saying was that I didn't really apologize for, I was just like, this is how we're going to do this and we can't do it the other way and here's why. I was just being assertive, but they're not used to that coming from a woman and uh, they liked it. Um, and so I was lucky that it was a German company. I'm not sure that I would get that in some other companies, but you know, don't be afraid to be assertive. Don't be afraid to be, to be labeled difficult because honestly, difficult women are the only reason that we ever get anything done. Hillary Clinton's a difficult woman. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a difficult woman. I like difficult women. <laughs> so if you were not here today, what would you be doing? You know, I, I think I would probably be teaching. I really like done the adjunct professor thing. I really like teaching and kind of shaping the young minds of, of, of college and law students. But I also always wanted to be a book editor. I always thought that would be a really cool, cool job. I think I love reading and I love like how the writer's mind works. I don't know that I would be writing, but there might be a book in me based on some of the experiences I've had in my career. So stay tuned on that one. <laughs> Oh, we will be watching out for it. Stephanie, any last closing comments or advice for our listeners today? I think I think for me, you know, the the authentic self is really important and and really understanding that plans can change and goals can change, but at the same time, if you stay true to who you are and you have if you if you know what your 
ethics and your values are and you stay true to those, I think that's going to get you really, really far in life. Thank you so much for your time. All the best. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Divya.